0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Alan Schuback about his book, Hollywood at the Races, Films Love Affair with the Turf, published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2019. Alan Schubach has worked as a columnist and foreign correspondent for the Daily Racing Forum and was the American correspondent for the British racing daily, The Sporting Life. He's the author of Global Racing, The Complete Guide to the Greatest Foreign Race Courses, and a contributor to Bet with the Best, Expert Strategies from America's Leading Handicappers. Schuback writes frequently on the convergence of horse racing and the film world. And Alan, welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be here, Rachel.
0: Well, I am delighted to have you here because, as you know, horse racing is a, a passion and a former professional pursuit of mine. So to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background and how you became interested in the Hollywood Racing Connection?
1: Well, the connection actually started one, after, one Saturday afternoon at home. I was watching television. Every Saturday afternoon at about 4 o'clock, there would be a Laurel and Hardy film on TV. And after the Laurel and Hardy film came Win Elliott's racing program. Win Elliott was a great uh, a racing uh, announcer, and he would have a half-hour show every Saturday at 5 p.m. One day, it was the Flamingo Stakes in 1957. This was a, a key early prep for the Kentucky Derby. And as Elliott was going down through the list of horses in the race, he mentioned one named Bold Ruler. I thought to myself, that sounds like a good name for a racehorse. I was only but uh, nine years old at the time. Hmm. Well, Bold Ruler won. It's called beginner's luck. Unfortunately, beginner's luck only works once. <laughs> bold Ruler went on to become, uh, when the pre-mistakes, he would be sprinter of the year, Handicap horse of the year, uh, horse of the year, and leading stallion seven times, getting secretary in his uh, last crop. Uh, and I thought that was a, that's a pretty good pretty good start there. Anyway, watching the flamingo stakes that day and having a winner uh, attracted me to a racing, and I followed uh, started following racing then. And that was the great uh, 1957 three-year-old crop that included Bold Ruler, Gallant Man, Round Table, Iron Liege, and so many others. And really uh, was probably the year where American racing actually first took an advantage over European racing.
0: So that was the racing. And uh, you like Laurel and Hardy too, obviously.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, there were lots of old films on TV in those days. And, uh, I used to watch, oh, we had a program called million dollar movie on, uh, WOR channel nine every night. And I can remember vividly watching King Kong for the first time. And many, many, many times after that, it remains my favorite film. Uh, and as one grew older, one expanded one's horizons, uh, um, and I just uh, became more and more of a film fan until one day, my sophomore year at Northwestern University, I was uh, told that uh, down in Chicago, there would be a double feature of Ingmar Bergman films. I said, Oh, well, that sounds good. I'll go see them. It happened to be the seventh seal and the magician. And it was a life changing experience because then I realized that film wasn't simply an entertainment, that it could really tell you something about your deepest inner emotions and, and, and feelings. Hmm.
0: And when did you realize there was a connection between Hollywood and horse racing?
1: Well, uh, I've always been very interested in history. And uh, as I got older, I, I noticed uh, there were lots of uh, racing films that had been made in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, then when I started traveling around the world and from New York out to California, uh, I just. Uh, looked into the history of of racing and uh, discovered that um, all three of the major racetracks in Southern California, Santa Anita, Del Mar, and Hollywood Park had been founded all or in part by people in the film industry in Hollywood.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I want to ask you about those in a moment. First, so Thorpe Racing has existed for centuries in Britain, France, and the East coast of the United States. But the era you write about begins in the early part of the 20th century and the locale is California. Presumably the movie industry blossomed around this time as technology developed, but what led to the rise of the racing industry in California at the same time?
1: Well, it was the film industry. Um, In Southern California, racing had been virtually abolished in 1909. There was a Santa Anita uh, in those days run by Lucky Baldwin. But then uh, conservative uh, elements um, took offense at gambling, and uh, the pari laws were 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 uh, were, um, were rescinded, and you couldn't get a bet down. So all racing really stopped. Uh, and then along comes at the same time uh, the film industry um, when uh, Cecil B. DeMille went out to uh, um, make a, a film in um, in Southern California. He was. uh, It was called the Squaw Man, and this was like uh, 1919, I believe. Um, He went to Arizona with his crew and couldn't film there because there was a blizzard. So he got everyone back on the train, went out to uh, Los Angeles, where there was always nice weather, and he made his movie there. He put up a studio in a barn that was about a block away from where Hollywood and Vine is now, and he uh, he made the first uh, he made. his first film right there and it just blossomed as everyone knows throughout the 1920s film took off Now there was lots and lots of money and, they, and the, the producers, directors and actors were all helped because there was virtually no income tax in those early days so they had lots of money but uh, there was there wasn't a whole lot of culture in Southern California at the time and there was no sport at all. Uh, There were two football teams in college football teams, UCLA and USC, but there were no professional sports. Baseball uh, was restricted to the East Coast. Football and basketball on the professional level were uh, small potatoes. So they had nothing to do, uh, no, no place to go to spend their money. And then along comes Prohibition in 1919. So for a long time in Southern California, you couldn't buy a drink and you couldn't get a bet down on anything. But there was Mexico over down in Tijuana, just across the border from San Diego. And they had a racetrack there. And the Hollywood type soon discovered how much fun it could be to go down to Tijuana and play the horses and go to the casinos and, and get a drink without, having, uh, without, without breaking the law. And uh, Tijuana Racecourse was a, a very fashionable place to go. And then after a few years, uh, some of the Americans realized how much money that could be made there, and they started Agua Caliente, where they uh, put together a race called the uh, the Agua Caliente handicap, which for a few years was worth a hundred thousand dollars. And this is this is in the late twenties, which is I mean the race was worth more than two million dollars of today's money. And and lots of people went down there. Uh, Raúl Walsh uh, was was always down there, and uh, Uh, so, so, so many others were too. Um, and then finally the people in California realized that, uh, so many wealthy Californians, not just Hollywood film types, but regular people were going down there and all the tax money was going to Mexico. So they decided that they would, they would reinstate paramutual wagering. And along about the same time, uh the nineteenth amendment for prohibition was rescinded and suddenly California was uh it was a place where you could have gambling, you could have horse racing, and you could you could get a drink too. And um that led to the development of Santa Anita.
0: Okay, so the 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 film characters um wanted to have a good time and they created a way to have that good time in their own state. Uh, rather than going to Mexico. So these three racetracks opened in Southern California in the 1930s. Uh, you mentioned them. Would you tell us a bit about each one and its specific connection to Hollywood?
1: Well, the first was was Santa Anita. There were a, a number of different groups who wanted to uh, take advantage of uh, uh, of opening a new race course. And uh, the people, uh, there, was, there was a great... Uh, it was like a race just to get to see who would have the first race course. And, um, Hal Roach had plans, uh, of of his own. Hal Roach was the head of the Hal Roach studios. He was the producer of the, um, our gang comedies and most famously of the Laurel and Hardy, uh, of films. And he was a, a racing fan himself. And he, uh, he, he tried a couple of times to, um, to, to get a race course started. He wanted to have one near his own studio in Culver City, but the local people objected. And then he hooked up with, um, uh, <coughs> with people from San Francisco. Um, who, their names, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, Charles Strube, <coughs> who had been <coughs> a dentist in, um, in San Francisco, lost all his money when, in the earthquake and then a few years later after building his fortune back up again lost it in the stock market crash yeah. but he was a resourceful man and uh, he and uh, he got his, his fortune back up again and he and Roach went together and they started um, they, they put together Santa Anita after uh, uh, being stymied in a couple of places by the locals who did, still didn't want to have horse racing around and uh, Roach and uh, the and uh, threw uh, Put San Anita together, getting lots of help from a number of other people, including Bing Crosby, who was one of the mm-hmm. uh, uh, regulars at uh, Agua Caliente and was always interested in horse racing. Um, and they built it on practically the same place where the original San Anita had closed 19- in nineteen oh nine, in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains, arguably one of the most the most beautiful site for a racetrack imaginable.
0: And then, uh, which one was next?
1: Well, Santa Anita got off to a a great start. Um, and there was soon the understanding that if, if horse racing was going to succeed in Southern California, they had to have racing more or less the year round. And this is where Bing Crosby, uh, stepped in. He had, uh, he was one of the backers of the uh, of Santa Anita. He had a box on the uh, uh, on the Santa Anita finish line, and, and, and he was um, he was a sportsman. He had played uh, basketball and baseball in college. He loved to play golf. He loved to play tennis, and uh, he loved horses. In his biography. He, uh, he said, I, could not, I cannot tell my story completely unless I bring in my passion for horse flesh. Hmm. And he did have a passion for horse flesh. So he got together with Pat O'Brien and they decided they would uh, build another race course, but not in Los Angeles, further south. They, uh, they bought some property uh, in Del Mar right along the beach and uh, began agitating for, uh, for a race course there. It was a long struggle. They would run out of money and uh, Crosby and, and O'Brien actually had to take out um, uh, take out loans on their life insurance policies uh, at one point in order to keep uh, keep things going. And uh, finally they they succeeded and in July 1938 I think it was they, they finally uh, got the uh, Delmar opened and uh because Bing Crosby Bing Crosby at the time was the the biggest star in in Hollywood not only as a, a, an actor but as a singer he had had a great number of number one uh hit songs um in fact uh just yesterday I saw a film with him uh High Society in which uh it's not a horse racing film but he sings a bunch of uh Cole Porter songs he was immensely popular throughout the 30s 40s and 50s and uh as bob hope once said um why did you go down there to uh to delmar and and he said well bing asked me and if bing asks you do it he Mm -hmm. he was uh he had a lot of of uh talent at his command and he he marshalled it together and and started delmar which uh, to this day is the uh the known as the race course where the turf meets the surf and a song of his that he wrote um uh, is played before the first race uh, and after the last race every day at Del Mar and so suddenly uh, Southern California now had two race courses uh Santa Anita where they would race in the winter and spring and uh, Del Mar where they would race in the summer, but it still wasn't enough.
0: So Del Mar, that was another lovely place to build a racetrack. What about Hollywood Park?
1: Then along came Hollywood Park. Now there is there's a controversy about the the beginning of uh, Hollywood Park, its origins, um, and it has to do with the social policies uh, that they uh, Hal Roach and Charles Stube, uh put together at San Anita, and that was that Jews could not enter the Turf Club in Santa Anita. Now, the grandstand at Santa Anita was divided into three areas. The grandstand, and in the same building, there was the clubhouse, which uh, you pay a few extra dollars and you have nicer amenities. But there was a separate building next to the, the, uh, the clubhouse called the Turf Club. And this is where all the elites were, were gathering. All the elites except the Jews. Now, since most of the leading producers in Hollywood, most of the leading studios in Hollywood were run by Jews, MGM, Warner Brothers. Uh, This rankled. It was clear discrimination. And so Jack Warner and Harry Warner at Warner Brothers decided they would start a race course of their own. And they got Louis B. Mayer from MGM and uh, just about everyone from Hollywood, whether they were Jewish or not, put their weight behind Hollywood Park. Uh, Finding an area for it was uh, just as difficult as it had been for Santa Anita. Um, At first, they were going to build a race course near um, the Veterans Center in uh, West uh, West Hollywood, but they protested because... There was a big publicity campaign oh you don't want to take the few dollars that the veterans are are getting and 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 have them wasted at the race course so they had to look around for another place and they finally found one in inglewood which is just east of where uh los angeles uh um, international airport is right now uh kind of out of the way and the first when it was first opened it, it wasn't called hollywood park but then they soon realized that they had to call it hollywood park because they wanted everyone to know that this was Hollywood's racecourse, even though it was uh, probably about 15 miles from from Hollywood Boulevard, and uh, so Hollywood opened, and everybody could go there regardless of race, color, creed, or religion. And uh, suddenly, Southern California had three race tracks, and uh, th- business was booming. They were open all but a, uh, a, 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 a five or six weeks of the year in Southern California for racing. Hmm.
0: So, you know, that's rather shocking to hear that history, although certainly there was plenty of discrimination against Jews in the United States in the 1930s. But, you know, given that you would think these are really powerful people in Hollywood and and you would think they would have a lot of of cultural sort of cachet, but what what percentage do you know of people, um, you know, sort of the bigwigs in Hollywood were Jewish at this time?
1: Well... (sighs) Um, Benito Mussolini the fascist leader of Italy once opined that there are more Jews in Hollywood than there are in Tel Aviv of course he was exaggerating Uh, he was a fascist after all Hal Roach was a lifelong admirer of Benito Mussolini and once entertained his son uh, at his studios introduced him to the Our Gang uh, kids there's a famous picture of of Spanky Alfalfa and Darla all gathered mm-hmm. around Mussolini's, uh, son. Uh, Mussolini himself was, uh, uh was interested in the film. He built Shinna the great, um, film studio in Rome, and his son, uh, wanted to promote, uh, um, film, and that's why he, uh, he went to Hollywood to see what was going on there. Uh, and he knew of, uh, Roach's, uh, admiration for his father, and so the, the two Work together, but this this is evidence that, of, of what was was going on in Hollywood, even with the Jews dominating the film industry, calling probably four fifths of all the shots in Hollywood. Uh, there, there there was still room for discrimination, and uh, uh, Charles Strube and Hal Roach found it and uh, would not allow uh, Jews into the uh, into the turf club, which was where all. You know, the business deals, whether they were film or racing deals or other kinds of deals were made, which is where all the top class socializing uh, was uh, was taking place. And since Del Mar was uh, at the time only an, an August track, uh, that, that means that the only racetrack that was in Southern California, where on a regular basis, Santa Anita, the most exclusive area was uh, denied to Jews. But with the opening of Hollywood um there was they didn't have that problem, and they didn't have that problem at Delmar either. Bing Crosby was an open-minded man, and he wasn't about to um, deny Jews or anyone else access to any area.
0: So you think a lot of it had to do with Hal Roach's um, attitudes well, towards Jews? I, you know,
1: we know more about Hal Roach because he's a more famous figure than Charles Strube, But uh, Strube was involved too, and and you know the people that they had close to them were. Uh, were involved. There's it, it, a film that they made about Jew, uh, discrimination against Jews in Hollywood, Gentleman's Agreement. Uh, mm-hmm. It was all very, um, all very pleasant and gentlemanly, above board. There, you know, the, there were no beatings of Jews. There was no, there were no public arguments. It was all very gentlemanly and quietly handled, and was, which uh, it made it almost invisible. Uh, but it was certainly felt by, uh, you know, the Jewish producers and, and directors. Mm-hmm. Who were being excluded,
0: yeah. And so is that how it was done at Santa Anita too? Because I don't imagine that they would have had a sign on the door saying "No Jews allowed."
1: No, well, I, you know, Jewish discrimination, I think, is not quite the same as discrimination against against blacks. Yeah, you, know, you can you, right away you can see who's black, but with Jews, it's, it's not that way. It was much more subtle a uh, kind of thing, and uh, but, but at least is effective.
0: Yeah, I didn't Hal Roach actually start a film company with the son of Mussolini Jr.
1: Yes. Yes, he did. And it was racked with all sorts of problems. Um, there was a deal that uh, Roach would put money into uh, pictures that would be made in Italy at Shinna Shida. And uh, um, he, it, it just didn't take off. Uh, after there were lawsuits involved and. Uh, And ultimately, it it, it all fell apart.
0: Well, maybe just as well. So let's go to another character, Louis B. Mayer. Uh, And he's famous as the head of MGM Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. And as you write, he also had a near obsession with thoroughbred racing and breeding, or maybe it was an obsession. The book has a fascinating chart depicting Mayer's racing and breeding results year by year. And it's alongside a column of the MGM movie releases that occurred under his reign. And some of them included The Wizard of Oz, The Philadelphia Story, Woman of the Year, Lassie Come Home, National Velvet, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Little Women. So he certainly had plenty to keep him busy. But what were some of Mayer's most notable racing exploits?
1: Well, (coughs) Mayer was not originally... A racing fan even as racing was was booming he would he would contribute to uh uh um the development of uh, hollywood park and and he would be at san anita he had a box at san anita and he had a box at at damar but it, it wasn't really something that he was very much interested in he had some problem physical problems he went to a doctor and the doctor said you need a hobby uh and uh he wasn't a very athletic, person so he wasn't going to take up swimming or or golf or tennis. And someone reco- uh, recommended horse racing, where you know you can just sit back and you know buy horses, bet on horses, watch horses. It's a it's a nice pastime, and you can you can sit all afternoon and watch it uh, from your, your seat in the grandstand. So he he got together uh, a team, which in racing terms was the equal of the team that he had put together at MGM, which was by far the leading studio in the 1930s. Uh, and he started to buy racehorses with the advice of all these top people from Kentucky and England uh, on, on what he ought to do. And, you know, he, Mayer was a genius. He, he rose to the top of uh, the film world, and almost as soon as he started getting interested in horse racing, he rode... To the top of, uh, of the racing world. He knew from the advice he had been given that the key to success in racing is through breeding, and so he wanted to buy good stallions and good mares to begin to develop his own good racehorses. The first one he went after was Man O' War, who would uh, <laughs> revolutionize American racing in 1920 and became the most popular thoroughbred racehorse up to that time. He offered Sam Riddle, Man O' War's owner, a million dollars for, um, for man of war. And Sam Riddle said, uh, no, no, absolutely not. He's uh, not going to do that. Years later, Riddle said he was afraid that, um, mayor would use man of war in one of his horses in one of his pictures, huh. uh, which, which tells you something about what the, um, the non, uh, uh, racing world, uh, thought, what, what, what it, it, it tells you something, what, the, the racing world thought of people out in Southern California, that they were only dilettantes, uh, that yeah. the mayor didn't know what he was doing. Well, mayor did know what he was doing. He didn't get uh, man of war. So then he tried to get Hyperion, who had been a champion in England and uh, was look. It, it looked like he was going to become the next great stallion in the world. And in fact, that's exactly what he did. Hyperion's okay. influence is all over the thoroughbred map, even today. So he offered Lord Darby, uh, Hyperion's owner, one million dollars for Hyperion. And Lord Darby took umbrage, and he said famously, uh, though England lay in ashes, Hyperion will never leave these shores. And (laughs) Hyperion never did leave these shores. But Mayer was uh, undeterred, and the next year, he had his people searching around and he came across uh, a young foal by uh, <coughs> hyperion named unnamed foal and he bought it for 3200 guineas which was about ten thousand dollars at the time and he brought it to southern california and by this time mayor had already put together a, a farm uh, out uh, outside of los angeles southeast of los angeles and this horse came there. He named it Alibi, and it, in early workouts, it was burning up the track. In fact, there was a, there's there's the legend is that one day, Alibi broke the track record at San Anita in a workout for one mile, which is really quite astounding. He was getting ready for his first race, and a few days before it, he had a workout and bowed a tendon really badly, so badly that he had to be retired. And he never ran. But Mayer started breeding horses with him. And Alibi became one of the leading stallions of his, uh, of his period. He, he sired uh, your host, who would eventually sire Kelso, the five-time winner of the Jockey of Gold Cup. He mm-hmm. Alibi sired Determin, who won the Kentucky Derby. He also sired Flower Bowl for whom there is still a race named in uh, mm. at Belmont Park. Flower Bowl would be this, uh, the dam of Grostark and His Majesty, two of the leading uh, stallions of the uh, 60s and, and 70s. Uh, it, Mayer had the golden touch. And
0: that's amazing because you, you couldn't do that these days. You couldn't take a stallion who had never raced, a, a cult who had never raced and turn him into a, a major stallion.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's uh, you know. There's well, it, it's expertise on the part of Mayor and his his team, but it's also luck because uh, in order to succeed in racing, you need expertise and luck. Uh, yeah. And and Mayor had them both in spades. He, uh, he he also sired the last the last big horse that um, he sired was um, that he was that he, he bred uh, Mayor was Royal Orbit, who won the um, the Preakness Stakes um in uh, 19, uh 1958 i think in March. Uh, his-
0: with that is as you say he must have had extraordinary luck or extraordinary genius combined with good luck because you as you write there were a lot of other of these movie stars or studio heads who put a lot of money into trying to build a powerful racing stable and they they weren't very successful at it
1: and, and, and the classic example of that is harry warner over at MGM's rivals, Warner Brothers, uh, Mervyn Leroy, uh, the, the great director, uh, married Harry Warner's, uh, daughter. So they were father-in-law and son-in-law. They both liked racing, especially Leroy. So they pooled their resources and they started buying horses and they bought horses and bought horses for 20 years, but they never had a stakes winner. Uh, they had winners. Uh, I imagine that they, they, you know, they didn't lose too much money, but, um, Unlike Mayer, they were uh, basically busts at the game.
0: Yeah. So Mayer, tell me this. How did he manage to produce all of those major, major films and produce all of these major racehorses and go to the race? How did he have the time to do all that?
1: We well, he probably didn't have the time. But one must remember that Louis B. Mayer, wasn't a producer in the sense that Irving Thalberg was a producer. Irving Thalberg was the man who would put hands-on and, and, and oversee every step of a production of a film. Louis B. Mayer was a step higher than that, and he just delegated responsibility. Uh, in fact, he uh, he delegated his responsibility once he started getting racing interested in racing to a point where the other executives at MGM Uh, became worried about what he was doing. Uh, Mayor started spending so much time at Santa Anita or Hollywood or Del Mar or at his farm uh, southeast of of Los Angeles or at morning workouts, talking with trainers and owners and jockeys to get inside information that the uh, executives at MGM began to worry about what he was doing. This was during the war years in the 1940s. um he they had a code at mgm it was something along the lines of um someone would ask where where is louis today and they would say oh he's on he's on set 17 or or he's on set 18 which didn't exist set 17 (laughs) was code for hollywood park set 18 was code for santa anita and, uh, the, you know, there wasn't much that the, you know, the underlings in Los Angeles could do about it. But the boss, even Louis B. Mayer had a boss. And that boss was back in New York in the form of Mr. Skank, who was in charge of uh, uh, Lowe's Incorporated. They, they owned MGM and they were the distributors. And that's where uh, he started to get in trouble. And finally, he had to, uh, uh, he, he had to make a decision. About whether he would continue with MGM uh, exclusively or continue with racing and MGM, and he had to sell off all his horses, but not before he had uh, a couple of the, the best racehorses of the uh, the mid nineteen forties.
0: Oh wow, what a tale! You could yeah. make a movie about it.
1: Yeah, you could make a movie about it, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and well, you know they do make movies about individual racehorses. Uh, you know, there's movies about seabiscuit and secretariat. Um, yes, Mayor's legacy in, in breeding, you know, can can be found just by looking at the uh, horse's bloodlines. But he did have a, a couple of really top class ho- uh, fillies. Busher was the first one. Um and but unlike uh so many of the horses that Mayer had, he was not bred by Mayor. Um Colonel Edward R. Bradley had been uh, in charge of Idle Hour Farm, and anyone who's at least as old as I am, 75, will remember Idle Hour Farm. They were one of the the great racing and and breeding uh, operations in Kentucky, Uh, right up there with the uh, Whitneys and the Vanderbilts and Calumet Farm. Well, Colonel Edward R. Bradley had suffered some setbacks in in the 40s, and uh, he was offering a number of horses up for sale, including Busher. Who had been named two year old Philly champion, racing exclusively in the New York circuit, Belmont, Aqueduct, Saratoga. And he offered Busher to Louis B. Mayer, who snapped him up and uh, became one of the great racehorses of the era. Busher won consecutively the Santa Susana Stakes in Southern, at Santa Anita, a race which would eventually be known as the Santa Anita Oaks. Then he beat Colts in the San Vicente Stakes. Then he was second in the Santa Anita Derby, the Southern California prep for the Kentucky Derby. Then he won the Santa Margarita back against Phillies, the Cleopatra handicap. Then he was sent to Chicago. In those days, racing in Chicago was, uh, well, racing in Chicago these days hardly exists anymore with the closure of Arlington mm-hmm. Park. But there were a lot of good races in the summertime in uh, at Washington Park. Uh, including the Arlington Handicap, which he won against Colts. Then he won the Washington Park Handicap, which was a race that was basically as good as the Jockey Club Gold Club is these days. A race in which he beat Arm, the two-time champion uh, handicap horse, Polynesian, the Preakness stakes winner, and Gallarette, a a champion uh, filly. And uh, Mm -hmm. she was giving weight to all of those horses, a three-year-old filly, giving weight to older Mm -hmm. colts and fillies and and beating them. Then she came back Mm -hmm. to Hollywood and won the Hollywood Derby and the Vanity Handicap, was named three-year-old filly champion, older filly or mare, handicap champion, and horse of the year, and uh, was rated the 40th best racehorse of the 20th century in the United States. Uh, An astonishing record. Uh, Yeah. So
0: whatever he paid for her, it was probably (laughs) worth it.
1: Yeah, and one could see why uh, why Mayor enjoyed horse racing. It, it, it's, it's, it's a social event. It's a it's a, a venue for gambling, and it's a uh, it's an equine sport. And he uh, Mayor enjoyed this. And, and then the following year, in 1946, a horse that he bred by uh, uh, Honeymoon, who was by Beaupère, an Australian horse. It shows you how far-reaching Mayer was. Jan not only bought horses from England like Alibi, but he would go to Australia and pick up a, a good stallion like Beau Pair, who was the sire of Honeymoon, who won seven stakes races in 1946, but was just short of championship quality. She didn't win any, any championship, but she did get a race named after her name, the Honeymoon uh, Handicap, which is still run in uh, at the uh, well, it's run at it Delmar now. Uh, it used to be run, of course, at, uh, at Hollywood until Hollywood closed uh, in 2013.
0: Yeah. And just for anyone who doesn't know who's listening, a filly is a young female horse.
1: Right. They're fillies when they're two, three, and four. And then then when they're five, they become mares.
0: Yeah. And they don't usually run against the males.
1: They don't usually, but uh, Busher did and did it, with, did it successfully.
0: Yeah. So another well-known Hollywood personality, Fred Astaire. He also had a passion for horse racing. And in fact, there's a a well-known horse named after him more recently. But Fred Astaire is among the most well-known names in Hollywood. Still, I would be surprised if many people were aware that he was married for seven years until the day of his death to one of the pioneering female jockeys. So would you tell us about that relationship and how it came about?
1: well Astaire had uh had gotten interested in horse racing when he was in England appearing in in shows on in the west End uh everybody England it, it, at that time horse racing was the national sport in England and uh especially amongst uh, the show business people, everybody had an idea on what was going to win the three fifty at Sandown or the the two forty five at uh at, um, uh, at Epsom. And Astaire got interested. He started playing the horses. And then when he came back to Hollywood, he started buying horses. I think his most famous horse was probably Triplicate, who won uh, a couple of big races, including the San Juan Capistrano at uh, at Santa Anita. Um, but as he got older, uh, he, he he wasn't owning horses anymore, but he was still going to the races. And in 1973, on New Year's Day, he was at Santa Anita when he was uh, introduced to Robin Smith, who was there to ride that day. Uh, she was riding in a, a, an allowance race, uh, a, a horse named uh, Exciting Divorcee, and the owner introduced him uh, to Robin Smith and uh, Robin Smith duly won the race by a nose at a long price beating a Bill shoemaker uh, ridden uh, odds on favorite. So Castaire certainly had some money on on uh, on Robin Smith that day but five years went by before they ever saw each other again. Robin Smith was based basically in New York uh, where she had great success. she was really the, the first uh, really successful woman jockey but uh, she was also, quite attractive. And uh, she was used as, as a model sometimes. Uh, um, and she was out in Los Angeles to make uh, a commercial for Shasta soft drinks. And she just cold called Fred Astaire up on the telephone and said, hi, remember me? And he said, oh, I certainly do. And she asked him out to dinner. And so they went out to dinner. and They went out to dinner again. And soon they became an item. And uh, they fell in love. And Robin Smith moved her pack out to uh, Southern California so she could be near Fred more often, and they got married.
0: And he was considerably older.
1: Oh, he, I think he was uh, like 77 when they got married or something around there. And, of course, she was, you know, in what her mid or late 20s, uh, yeah. old enough to be his be her Gosh. grandfather.
0: <laughs> yeah, and but you know, he's that. he
1: was a charming fellow, and he was very famous, and he was very wealthy. Yeah, oh, and, he was very, uh, and he could dance. And uh, um, yeah, he could dance. Uh, and uh, Rachel apparently, Rachel had a, a, a tough upbringing. She was an orphan, and she was basically unloved as a little girl. And uh, I, I guess she had stars in her eyes, and um, she saw her chance, and, and she took it.
0: Yeah, uh, and we should mention that women were only only started being licensed as jockeys in 1969. So when he met her in 73, it wasn't long after that.
1: No, that's right. And then, and then they got married in, in, in 78.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, an unknown aspect of Fred Astaire's life to a lot of people. Yeah, and I mean, there are a lot of, oh, yeah, sorry.
1: Go well, on. you know, Robin Smith wasn't riding until uh, the 1970s. Uh, in, in England, uh, you could women could ride. Hmm. Um, uh, well then we have the um, uh, the famous uh, fictional horse race in National Velvet. Oh yes, <laughs> where uh, Elizabeth Taylor tr- and with the help of Mickey Rooney trains a horse up to the Grand National, arguably the most difficult horse race to, to ride in the world. Hmm. Uh, and on the, on the morning of the race, when the, her the jockey for uh, her horse, um, shows up drunk, uh, they have to replace him. And who replaces him but Elizabeth Taylor herself, a 12-year-old girl who's never ridden in a race before, has um, doesn't have a license, uh, and uh, is suddenly riding in the most difficult race in the world and wins. Uh, this, you know, National Velvet is probably the most popular and famous of all the racing films ever made. But it, it's a pure fairy tale. It's a, it's a, it's a fairy and yet,
0: and it's yet, true. yeah, and yet it manages to convince
1: you. Uh, it, it, it's very well made. I mean, it is, it is a very good film. It won, uh, it won the Oscar for best editing, especially the editing of the the race itself, where which was uh, conducted on a, a golf course in Pasadena. Was it? Yes, and where you can, um, uh, they Oh, did a I'm very so good, disillusioned. They did, yeah, they did a very good job. <laughs> Uh, of, of the canal turn, which is the turn at the far end of the race course where the horses jump and immediately have to make a 90 degree left left hand turn. They did a very good job at that. The problem is you could see that the, the grass is much shorter than it would be at Aintree and that huh. the, sun, the sun was shining like it only does in Pasadena and, and <laughs> never does in Liverpool.
0: In Liverpool. <laughs> and the national, uh, the Grand National was actually a, a tougher course then than it is now. They've they've tamed it a little bit since yeah, then. They,
1: every every few years they seem to make one or another of the uh, the fences a bit easier, especially Beecher's Brook. Um, mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, they they uh, they just make it. A, uh, the landing side used to be like uh, a, a f- at least a foot lower than the yeah. jumping side. though well, they made that even, and they made the brook, uh, the water part, not as uh, not as wide. And uh, uh, you know, the, the traditionalists don't like that sort of thing. Uh, they think it should be uh, uh, really tough. I mean, it, it's supposed to resemble the sort of thing things that horses would go through in uh, on the battlefield, and the uh, national course <laughs> at, uh, at Aintree is certainly a battlefield.
0: It It, it is still pretty wild and woolly, though.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there's still a lot of horses that don't make it around the course. So you mentioned National Velvet, so let's just talk about racing movies now. Um, and you write that there were at least 60 racing-themed films in the 1930s, Which is a lot, and about 120 overall from the 1930s to the 1960s. What what purpose did the films serve, and how popular, or even how good, were they?
1: Well, the the great interest that Hollywood had in horse racing was reflected in the great number of uh, racing films that Hollywood produced. But it wasn't just uh, because Louis B. Mayer and Harry Warner and Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire liked horse racing. It was because America liked horse racing. In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, I would argue that horse racing was the most popular sport in the United States, even more popular than baseball, because there were more race tracks around the country, and it was... Uh, horse racing was really the only place in the time where you could get down a legal bet. Casino gambling was, was illegal. Sports betting was illegal. Uh, there were no lotteries. Yeah, you could get a bet down with your local bookie and there was plenty of betting for horse racing done with local bookies because not everybody can get to a racetrack every day. But it, it, the number of racing films that they made was a reflection of what the people in Hollywood liked and a reflection of what Americans were doing. And that's why Americans took to them. Now, the genre of the horse racing film, it cannot be uh, thought of as one of the most important in the history of Hollywood. They're not musicals. They're not film noirs. They're not westerns. They're not uh, romantic dramas. Uh, they, they fall pretty short of that, generally speaking. But uh, what what the, the producers would do is they would make Hollywood, uh, they would make racing films Adapt to what Hollywood was doing. There were racing films that were musicals, like uh, Going Places, um, which stars Vic Powell in his uh, when he was still a crooner, and has Louis Armstrong uh, uh, and uh, a number of uh, black singers. Um, they do a uh, a tremendous number uh, halfway through the film that lasts for about fifteen minutes. Um, it's uh, I would call them fractured um uh nursery rhymes they would take nursery yes. rhymes and to jazz uh uh arrangements they would they would re, re, re re-imagine them and it, it's a, a, a tour de force a 15 minute section of, of just great entertaining uh, uh music um and there would be film noirs. there would be films like the killing this stanley kubrick film about a, a heist at bay meadows racetrack um the um the ex Mrs. Bradford, which was uh, William Powell and uh, Gene Arthur, uh, solving a murder mystery. Um, hmm. They they would make screwball comedies like uh, A Day at the Races uh, with the Marx Brothers. So uh, racing films reflected all of these 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 things. Uh, now outside of National Velvet, which won for an Oscar for best editing and won. Uh, um the author and revere won the oscar for best supporting actress and it uh, it was nominated for best color cinematography um it, 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 trying to find a really great uh, racing film um is, is difficult they, they weren't all that good but they were entertaining and lots of them made uh, lots of them made money mm.
0: and now it's interesting because you mentioned betting is obviously betting is a part of going to the races and it's a big attraction for a lot of people and yet most of those movies were not about betting at the racetrack were they?
1: It's about 50-50 when they were about betting they were usually about fixed races Uh, this was a genre that started really in in England in the 1920s in silent films, Uh, The English made loads of pictures that were uh, about racing and almost every one of them was about a fixed race or a crooked jockey uh, hmm. and Hollywood followed up in, in that vein uh, um, with, with a number of pictures and they also made uh, pictures about uh, the the, uh, the effort for their horse to win the big race so that they could save the farm or get the, the operation for the little girl or save the Broadway show Broadway bill is is one of those um, um the, those kinds of pictures. Um, and then there were uh, there were films like um, Down Argentine Way, which holds a, a particular place in the history of the racing film. This is one of the better racing productions. It was made uh, at the behest of the, the American government in um, 1940. The government prodded Hollywood into making films to make nice to Latin American and South American countries in the run-up to World War II. The Germans were very influential in South America, and Washington wanted to uh, uh, get their two cents in by showing how much America appreciated uh, Latin American and South American countries, and there were lots of such uh, films made set in Mexico and Brazil, and Down Argentine Way was supposedly set in Argentina. Well, they didn't quite get it right. Um, their intentions were good. It starred Betty Grable and Don Michi. Uh, Betty Grable herself uh, played a, uh, an American horsewoman who goes down to Argentina to try and buy some horses from Don Michi, who plays an Argentine uh, uh, horse owner and breeder. It was a musical. Don Amici and Betty Grable sing the theme song. And along the way, we run into the Nicholas Brothers, the Torres Brothers, and uh, um, what was her name? The uh, Chiquita Banana Girl with the bananas in her head.
0: Oh, I can't remember.
1: Anyway, the problem was the Nicholas Brothers were Americans. The Torres Brothers were Mexicans. And, uh, and this uh, this movie star whose name escapes us was Brazilian.
0: Was it Carmen something?
1: Carmen Carmen Miranda?
0: Miranda, yeah. Carmen yeah. Miranda, right.
1: Uh, she was Brazilian, so there were no Argentines. This, this was bad enough, but the real problem with down Argentine Way was the racing scenes. Betty Grable uh, is with Don Amici, and uh, Don Amici and his trainer suddenly get the bright idea that a horse that has been the equestrian champion in Argentina for the last two years should now be returned to the racetrack and uh, run in the races, which is quite fanciful. And uh, the big race in question is something that looks like the Grand Premio Carlos Pellegrini at uh, San Isidro. Uh, that's uh, the Carlos Pellegrini is the South American equivalent to the Prix de l'Arc de Triumph, which is the uh, most important race in Europe and arguably the world. Mm. So they get this horse ready for this race, and the producers uh, and the, the director, Irvin Cummings, decide that it'll be a fixed race. And they have uh, the, the horse in question written by a jockey who, who's in the pay of the gangsters, and he's going to pull the race. Well, as things go go on, the horse wins the race anyway, and so everything is nice and hmm. a happy ending. And Betty Graeber goes home yeah. back to America very happy, and everyone lives happily ever after, except the Argentine authorities. Oh. What? What America, what, what the producers uh, at 20th Century Fox didn't understand was that the the jockey club in Argentina sitteth at the right hand of almost everything that happens in Argentina. Uh, Carlos Pellegrini was the founder of the jockey club. The big race was named there for him. And in, in Argentina, even to this day, if you want to be a, a top success in Politics, business, or sport, you have to be a member of the jockey club. Now, for the Americans to show a race in Argentina that was fixed was an insult not only to the jockey club, but to the Argentine nation. And the president of Argentina was so outraged, he sent a personal letter to Franklin Roosevelt uh, protesting. Uh, the depiction of Argentine racing and Argentine society in this film. The film was never shown in Argentina, even though it was a a big success uh, around the United States. So, you know, the the efforts to try and keep Argentina on the American side didn't make it, at least not in the form of down Argentine way. And as you know, uh, Argentina, uh, after the war, was a um, a good hiding place for ex-Nazis.
0: Well, but that just goes to show you how, you know, the sort of deep embedding of horse racing in human culture. And I guess that's some of what the, you know, even the movies about fixing races and ostensibly it's about fixing the odds and people making a killing or not on their bets, But it's really about human nature, isn't it? And yes, and, and, about-
1: and it, it goes way, way back. Uh, you could argue that the first film ever made was a horse racing film. Um Leland Stanford back uh, in the 1870s was uh, he was a wealthy man in San Francisco he's the founder of Stanford University and there was always controversy back then before the age of, uh, of film whether a horse actually picked up all four of his legs when he was at a full gallop I mean people men would argue over this point uh, you may recall the the paintings uh, that were made uh you know, in the 17th, in the 18th and 19th centuries of horses it, at full gallop are, are ridiculous. You see pictures yeah. of horses uh, with their front legs splayed forward, their back legs splayed backwards, and their, their bellies are like just a few inches off the ground. This is huh. what artists who are supposed to have keen vision saw when they saw horses running. And uh, so there, were, there was lots of debate, and Leland Stanford got into an argument with some people one day and he said, yes, horses do lift all four of their hooves off the ground. And uh, and the other guy said no. So they had a big bet. And Leland Stanford hired Edward Moybridge, the uh, British photographer who had been living in California. They set up a, a track with um, a straight track with trip wires attached to the latest high speed uh, cameras. And they had a rider and a horse run over through the track with a white background and as he as he was running he would trip the wires and a photo would be taken and so there were a series of photos taken of uh, this horse uh, in this exercise and when they were developed they showed clearly that for a few instants horses do indeed raise all four of their uh, hooves off the off the ground and uh, um, what Moybridge did was then he invented something called a praxuscope uh, it was uh, a, a, like a, a magic lantern, an early magic lantern, where you take the photographs and you you set them in, in this circular thing, and you flash a light on it, and it flashes a, a a moving image up on the screen. And so he did he did that with with all of the pictures he had taken of this horse in this experiment. And and this you know he, he, this was really the first the first film was a horse racing film.
0: Oh, fascinating! What year was that?
1: Oh, yeah, it was back in the eighteen seventies. I can't remember exactly. Oh. Mm-hmm. So it's kind
0: of like when you draw the you know little picture on the edges of the the margins of a book, and then you flip it with yeah. your thumb, and and it makes a.
1: Well, there there are, know, are makes... lots of flip books. You know, there. yes, I remember, that's you know, it. The boy used to have them. In fact, I have one of of King Kong uh, showing him on the top of the Empire State Building, uh, taken from the point of view of the the airplane pilot who's you know, shooting him down. <laughs>
0: okay, yeah, we used to have such fun as children before they got all
1: these. Everything is on the computer. De-
0: you know, com- t- devices. Exactly. Yes. Yeah.
1: Well, the medium so- is the message, as they say. As uh, uh, And certainly the medium of the uh, the computer, the laptop and all that is that, that, that is what people were doing. I, would, I would wonder, I, I, I fear for... Uh, for things like reading and film uh, going the way of people who don't see anything but, um, but computer computerized moving images.
0: Yeah. So on that note, Alan, let's, the end of the book, it really ends on a sober note and it details what you call the decline and fall of both horse racing and movies in the United States. So why do you see both endeavors as failing?
1: Well, you know i can remember going to the movies in the 60s and 70s uh, i i've seen pictures of people going to the movies in the 30s and 40s uh, and people don't go to the movies anymore not in the great numbers that they used to and i can remember going to the races myself of The first time I, like I said, the first time I ever saw a horse race was 1957 when Bold Ruler won the Flamingo Stakes on television. I didn't go to the races again until 1973 because in order to go to the races, you've got to have a little extra money. So I was 25 years old, and by then I had a little extra money. And the day that I went was the day that Secretariat won the Belmont Stakes again was beginner's luck. I saw one of the greatest uh, racehorse performances of all time. But it was five years before I started going again regularly. And I remember that was 1978. I live in New York, and I went out to Belmont on a Sunday afternoon in July. The feature race was an ungraded stake, and there were 30,000 people in the stands. And this was like a dozen years after New York City off-track betting had uh, uh, come along. Some people think that off-track betting uh, hurt horse racing, but it didn't. People still went out to the races. Three days later, I went out on a Wednesday afternoon to Belmont. 13,000 people were in the stands. Mm-hmm. For the last 15 years, the only crowds in New York at Belmont or Aqueduct that exceed 13,000 are at the Belmont Stakes. They're lucky if they get 1,500 people out at Belmont for a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. People will still go to the Kentucky Derby, the Preetness and the Belmont to the Breeders' Cup Every track has its big race, the Santa Anita Handicap, the Florida Derby, the uh, the, the uh, Arkansas Derby. Um, and there are the special meetings at Saratoga, Del Mar, and Keeneland. But uh, it, nowadays, people go to the races, uh, people watch the races almost exclusively to bet. And uh, the betting people who play, who bet horses at home on their computers do not become racing fans. And it's from the racing fans that racing produces owners, trainers, jockeys, uh, um, racetrack administrators, racetrack employees, and racing writers, and we're losing out on all of that because people don't go to the races. Just as we're losing out on uh, in the film industry, uh, you know, the, the golden age is over, the post golden age is over, and um, you know, racing racing was fashionable and uh, amongst the very fashionable Hollywood types. It, it reached peaks of uh, of, of, of popularity, uh, and uh, that's, that's not now. So
0: why is that? Is it – yeah, is it is it – with racing and the movies, is it because people are now – can do everything through their screens? Is that why people don't go to the movies I and I the races one, anymore? Or is there I think something else? that's one else? reason.
1: It, it's certainly a reason um, for horse racing um, – the people who run racing over the last 30 or 40 years have made a mistake in, in marketing the sport only for, only as a venue for, for, for betting, when in fact racing is a three-pronged activity. The venue for betting it's an equine sport in which the characters, the horses, the trainers, and the jockeys are just as interesting as football, baseball, and basketball players. But racing doesn't market itself that way, and it is a social occasion unlike any other sport. If you go to a baseball, football, or basketball game, you plunk yourself down in your seat and you watch the game for two and a half or three hours. But at a racetrack, you have to know how to behave. It's like a a, a mini version of, of the world itself. You have to know how to behave. To walk around the racetrack, study the form, look at the odds, get online, place your bet, watch the race, go to the paddock, see the horses before the race, go to the winner's circle, see the horses after the race, have a beer between... Between races, and at each one of these places, you talk it over with with whoever you happen to meet. You can go into the uh, into the, um, the the track restaurant and have dinner uh, or lunch. Uh, well, Belmont Park doesn't even have such a place like that anymore. That you have, you can get a buffet supper, but there's no place to sit down and, and get a, a formal lunch anymore. So all of, all the, the social connotations in racing have gone by the boards, and in fact, horse racing has fallen off the American social and sporting schedule, except on those those rare d- big days, like uh, the Breeders' Cup, which we just had this past weekend, where people just aren't interested anymore. In fact, I had trouble getting this book, Hollywood at the Races, published, because I would go to a, 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 a commercial publisher, and as soon as horse racing was mentioned, I could tell they walked away from it. They weren't interested, and so I got it published by the University Press of Kentucky. <laughs> in a state which is uh, still interested in horse racing.
0: In horse racing.
1: But, but, uh, you know, but wasn't, not a major publisher.
0: Yeah. And what about movies? What's happened there?
1: Uh, it, 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 it's difficult for me to put my finger on it. Um, the decline of American culture or world culture, because films are, are not really prospering anywhere else. France still makes some very nice films. but I think... Um, it, You know the new technologies, the home environment, the home entertainment environment has really hurt. Hollywood was frightened to death of television when it came along in 1948. They tried everything from 3D to wide screens to road shows and big hoopla's and everything, and and they they held television off quite well until uh, until the 1980s when things really started to go haywire. Uh, Francois Truffaut, the great French filmmaker, once said that in order for a film to be successful it must possess two characteristics. It must tell the truth and it must be un spectacular. It must be a show. It must be it must entertain. Now most American films these days fall into one or the other category. You've got the great blockbusters, the Marvel comic book films, which are all entertainment, uh, and 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 show tell no truth at all. And then you have the independent films which have risen in uh in opposition to these terrible blockbusters but have gone to the other extreme um they tell a certain brand of the truth about one's personal life of first falling in love first having sex or first getting divorced or or growing up and, and learning about the world and things which don't don't have any great interest uh to the general public um these films tell the truth but they're not entertaining, and uh, I think the American public you know, why should they go out and see these these things? They, mm-hmm. They're they're even hard pressed sometimes to to buy them on Netflix. Netflix is apparently quite a bit of trouble. Uh, they don't even bother to watch these things at home, and this is all very disconcerting because racing and uh, uh, going to the movies are both were or, and still are convivial. Uh, experiences communal experiences you go out and you experience mm-hmm. something with like-minded people but you, it's difficult to do that when you go to a racetrack and there are fewer than a thousand people at the racetrack or if you go into a 500 uh, seat movie theater and, and there are only seven or eight people in the theater Yeah,
0: it's just not is- as
1: much fun um, David, uh, David Lynch who made uh, the the um, uh, um, a number of terrific films uh said a few years ago that he wasn't going to make any more movies because there is no longer a film culture in america well Mm -hmm. a few weeks later he rescinded that and he said uh, that he might make new films but he hasn't and it's five years since we've had a film from him and and he's Mm -hmm. right there is no film culture in america the way the way there used to be uh, the way uh, it, it, names of films and movie stars would be on the tips of every tongue. And the same with horse racing. Jockeys uh, like Eddie Arcaro and uh, Bill Shoemaker and Angel Cordero, uh, you can go into a bar and mention these names in, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s and everybody would know who you were talking about. But now, if you mention the top riders in America, Erad Ortiz, Joel Rosario, uh, uh, Florent Giroux, or Loving and pro nobody knows what you're talking
0: about. Well, I, I sadden you, but there's a, so much wonderful history here to read. And I want to remind everyone the book is called Hollywood at the Races Films Love Affair with the Turf by Alan Schuback. And Alan, thank you so much for this um, really stimulating and fascinating talk.
1: You're welcome, Rachel.